Hey everybody, it's Bina007 back again with the next book in our Agatha Christie reread. And this time it's The Man in the Brown Suit, written in 1924, which is a really wonderful but also anachronistic for us um, thriller set largely in South Africa, in a South Africa that is very firmly in its colonial heyday. So there is going to be problematic stuff in there that reflects its time, but also stuff that's incredibly modern and progressive in its amazing heroine and bedding field. And reading this book again, I am brought back immediately to reading it the first time, maybe 25 years ago, and how vividly I still picture that heroine as a very feisty, adventurous, comical and brilliant young woman and also how much I enjoyed the character one of the larger than life characters of C. Eustace Pedler. Um, it really is a book that sticks with you in your imagination and if you can go with it I think still rewards a reading. I really thoroughly enjoyed rereading this um, probably the most of any of the books I've read so far. So what is it all about? As the book opens and Beddingfield um, very briskly describes being a very, you know, young woman, early 20s. Um, she was living with her father, who was an eminent archaeologist, so very learned, but not very practical. Her mother has died years ago. So Anne is very smart, very capable, very independent. And we meet her when her father has died, and all she has left um, once everything is settled is just under a hundred pounds. And a little bit like Tuppence from the Tommy and Tuppence novel, and a little bit like the character in The Mysterious Affair at Styles, Anne is a post-World War One child, so she has worked during the war, and she is a modern young woman, capital M, capital Y, capital W, and she knows she doesn't want to be pitied. She knows she doesn't want to be a suburban housewife, and indeed, after her father's death, when she has no one in the world, She's taken in by the family solicitor and she's quite dismissive of the rich housewives that she is invited to hang out with and knows that she wants more. She also reads lots of uh, fictional, metafictional books called The Perils of Pamela. And she really pokes fun at herself and her her sort of adventure story obsession and making everything into an an adventure. So this book is at once an absolutely rip-roaring, wonderful thriller adventure, but also knows it's kind of slightly silly. And I think that's why it survives. It survives the aging process. So Anne is at a tube station one day and happens to see a man kind of either being pushed or falling onto a tube track and being killed. Um, slash murdered and disappearing away from that body is a man in a brown suit that smells of mothballs and he drops a cryptic note as he leaves with apparently a date on it and the word Kilmorden Castle and Anne decides to follow this adventure to try and figure out what the Kilmorden Castle is. She does at least at first try and give that evidence to the police who dismiss her out of hand as just a silly little girl So then, rather bravely and rather entrepreneurially, she goes and finds the editor of a a tabloid newspaper, so the equivalent of the New York Post, and says, look, put me on your payroll. I'm, I'm an investigative reporter. I have this one clue that the police didn't want. 
and I'm going to follow it on. And the editor of the paper, Lord Naseby, who I guess is a, a version of Lord Beaverbrook, who owned tabloid newspapers at the time, um, says, fine, you go find, you know, hunt down your story and we'll put you in our newspaper. So off she goes, this newly orphan girl, and she discovers that the Kilmorden Castle is actually a cruise ship that's sailing from London to South Africa. She spends all of her inheritance on a first-class ticket, and off she goes to try and see what is going to happen on this ship on the night in question. And she meets the following characters. She meets um, the Reverend Chichester, sort of a British cleric. She meets Sir Eustace Pedler, MP, Member of Parliament, very august figure who is being sent um, down to South Africa to observe the conditions on the Rand. And she meets his secretaries, Guy Paget, um, who seems very suspicious and wary. Sir Eustace also has a second secretary called Harry Rayburn, who seems to be seasick and spends most of his time in the room. And she also meets the wonderful Suzanne Blair, who is a very rich American lady who um, is also traveling to South Africa and who befriends Anne and is a rather wonderful character. And she also meets the incredibly handsome Colonel Race, who we are going to meet also in Death of the Nile and a number of the other famous Christie books, who is kind of the image of a dreamy um <laughs> a dreamy secret service agent he's older than Anne in his 40s and i think this is the image that agatha christie and her ilk would have had of what a dreamy older man would be kind of like a sort of dashing james bond style figure so the boat is full of really fascinating figures it, oh i should also mention that before they board the boat um a woman has been murdered in a country house where the man in the brown suit has also been seen and observed. So there is a national hunt going on for this man in the brown suit. And the house in which that woman was killed happened to be owned by Sir Eustace Pedler. So you kind of have a murder mystery, although this is more of a thriller. Who killed the woman? Who killed the man on the tube? And who is the man on the brown suit? Um... But you also have kind of a closed door, closed house mystery, you know, when you have people all stuck in a country house or all in a boat, as in Death on the Nile, um, because they are all on a boat going to South Africa for pretty much half of the novel, I would say. And you meet these same characters again and again once they reach Africa, too. And essentially, this is Anne trying to figure out what's happening and what's going on and getting into scrapes, um, being kidnapped, having to escape. You know, there are guns hidden in stockings and all sorts of stuff. It really is. If you love James Bond novels and that sort of thing, there's something of that kind of dated colonial thriller, if that's a word I can use, to this book. So without ruining any of the plot points, I really think it is fun. And, and as with all of these early Agatha Christie's, I think in my paperback edition, it's 310 pages. It's a very quick and fun read. It was published in 1924. It was badly received because it was not a Poirot book. And people by then wanted murder mystery and Hercule Poirot. Um, so it didn't actually do very well. But it was serialized in a newspaper. And that was really the first proper money that Agatha Christie earned. She was still on this really awful early book deal with Bodley Head. So she wasn't earning much from her novels, but she was from the serializations. And this is still, I think, Agatha Christie experimenting with form and style. She hasn't settled on the fact that she's going to be a pure murder mystery writer. And in fact, she never really was. 
she always wrote the odd thriller and she always wrote books that were sort of under a different name that were more autobiographical and more like novels. And she is, I think there still is an element of P.G. Woodhouse in some of the comedy here. Technically, she's in dialogue with Wilkie Collins of Moonstone fame. She's experimenting with showing excerpts of diaries and with different narrators, something that she would use again in um, The Merger of Roger Ackroyd, very famously, and also The ABC Murders and other novels that she wrote. So it's all really fascinating, like how the book was put together. The One of the things that is really fascinating about this book is that it gives a beautiful snapshot of what it would have been like to travel to Africa in this period, um, because it's based on real life. So at this point, remember, Agatha is married to her first husband, Archibald Christie, and he still hasn't quite found his footing in the world. So they still are quite hard up for money, and she is effectively still the breadwinner. Um, And they're still in the heyday of their marriage, um, which was founded, as we know, on the fact that he's incredibly dashing. She's very pretty. And there's clearly a strong sexual chemistry there. Archie Christie was offered by his old teacher from Clifton College, a man called Major Belcher, which is such a great fictional name, but that's his real name, to travel around the world with him to promote the forthcoming, because this is when they were away in 1922, to promote the forthcoming 1924 British Empire exhibition. So it was essentially a free round the world trip. And in order to partake of this trip, Agatha and Archibald Christie left their daughter, their very young daughter at home with the nanny, which I guess must have been par for the times for a certain type and a certain class of English uh, couple. Major Belcher is the one who said to Agatha Christie, I think you should write a murder mystery with someone like me as a character. So Sir Eustace Pedler takes some of Major Belcher's characteristics and he had a house um, called Mill House and he said to her, I want you to set a murder here. So the, the woman who gets killed in the country house, that is based on Major Belcher's house in Marlow. So they travel around the world and they evidently have an amazing time. You can read about it in Agatha Christie's diaries. And I think for those of us who are used to pictures of her as the old, rather plump, middle-aged to old woman, with her hair set in curls. You forget that she was young and vital. There's a beautiful description of her arriving for the first time in South Africa and seeing Table Mountain and having her breath quite taken away by the landscape, which I think is just so true to life and so beautifully written about how it feels the first time you see the vast, impressive landscapes of, well, for me, Africa also, but for wherever you are lucky enough to travel and get your breath taken away by nature and the grandeur of of vistas. There's lots of incredible detail. Like, it's really funny that her supposedly spunky, adventurous Anne Bedingfield heroine, um, you know, she gets on this boat and then just basically is seasick for four days and doesn't leave the cabin. So she's very honest about what it is to travel in that period. And you also get lots of lovely detail. And, you know, at one point, the heroine and her friend Suzanne Blair buy lots of carved wooden animals from people by the side of the railway who seem to just sort of mysteriously appear whenever the train stops, which is very true to life even now. Then you can find a picture of Agatha Christie buying those same wooden giraffes. She's put lots of detail in there. The most fun bit, and I urge you to seek this out through Google, is there's a wonderful picture of Agatha Christie surfing for the first time um, when she visited Hawaii. And she has a little story of, of Anne Bedingfield trying to surf as well. And it's it's so incongruous with the image that I think a lot of people have of Agatha Christie. is very stuffy and British and 
English country murders. And this is so cosmopolitan and so fascinating. It's also fascinating for those of you who know the story of Agatha Christie that she evidently knows quite a lot about archaeology, even here in 1922, when we know that she went on to marry an archaeologist as her second husband. So evidently the fascination was there from the start. Anyway, so she she goes on this amazing around the world trip. Um, she comes back with lots of local colour, writes the man in the brown suit. When they come back, she makes a lot of money on the serialisation. She buys her first car. And later in life, she says that buying that very humble little grey Morris Cowley car was the two one of the two most exciting incidents in her life because it gave her such freedom to hurl around London and, and see interesting things. So the other second most interesting thing in her life was going to Buckingham Palace and dining with the Queen. So there you go, buying your first car, then as now, very liberating and exciting. When they come back from the holiday, which I really feel was the sort of high point of that marriage, they move to Sunningdale, which is a sort of suburb west of London, and then, as now, is very much stockbroker belt, so where sort of rich, rich city types might live. Her husband did, did get a job in the city, and then sort of at weekends would play golf at the local golf club, and evidently started having affairs. And that's when the marriage started to go really badly wrong, because Agatha Christie was really stultified and frustrated by suburban housewifery. And she knew her husband was drifting apart from her, because he was evidently very happy in that surrounding. And if you read The Man in the Brown Suit and you read this sort of idealized vision of what Agatha Christie thought an admirable young woman was going out into the world and living her best life, then compare it to the life that Agatha Christie was really living. You can see why a crisis was in the brewing. If you want to watch a film of this, this is unusual. Like a lot of the Agatha Christie films that haven't been made again and again and again into TV shows are the thrillers because they're not a Poirot or a Miss Marple or one of those famous um, sort of series of novels. But there is a really fun 1980s version of The Man in the Brown Suit. And you can watch it in full in really crappy quality on YouTube. So I urge you to see if you can find it on something else. I remember this again very vividly from when I was a kid seeing it on TV. Something about these characters um, really stuck with me. And it stars Simon Dutton, who used to play the saint in a TV show, as the hero. It stars Stephanie Zimblist, who was in Remington Steel with Pierce Brosnan as the heroine, Adam Bedingfield, who is now a contemporary American woman. It's got Edward Woodward as Sir Eustace Pedler. And the best thing about this adaptation is it stars Blanche from The Golden Girls as Suzanne Blair as Anne's friend. And she's just playing, the actress is just playing Blanche from the Golden Girls. And it's just absolutely delightful. Um, so, yeah, I would thoroughly urge you to watch that if you can find it on a better version. And it's actually, bizarrely, despite becoming more modern, it's actually pretty um, faithful to the book. So it's, it's definitely well worth seeking out. Some things to say about the book. I think I have been very straightforward in my praise of Anne Bedingfield. I think Eustace Pedler is one of the most fascinating characters and Christine, one of the most fun. So definitely, definitely worth reading for that. This is a book more about material clues than psychological clues. If you're following the murder mystery, which is neat and does have a very neat trick in it. Um, it is fun to see Agatha Christie work with a heroine who's going to 
make deductions a bit like Sherlock Holmes. So, okay, the man in the brown suit has a coat that smells of mothballs, which means he hasn't worn it all winter, which means he's probably been traveling. And with his tan means he might have come back from one of the colonies. I think it's also a really fascinating book from a sociological perspective, because it really shows you what people thought was fashionable and attractive in 1922 when she wrote it. So Colonel Race, the Secret Service agent, who's really dashing and 19 and he's 40 years old and he's the strong silent time who's the big actor in the world I think is very much like a character out of Rudyard Kipling or for those of you who love the film Out of Africa the Sidney Pollack directed film there's a character there um, called Dennis Finch Hatton played by Robert Redford evidently the love interest in real life of the author Isaac Dennison and I think this, I think Colonel Race is very much meant to be a Dennis Finch Hatton type character, like just incredibly good looking, a man's man. You know, this is <laughs> like, this is a film, sorry, this is a film and book and general enterprise that is very much of its time. So um, I'm not sure if it's necessarily tos- toxic masculinity, but it definitely has a view of masculinity that, that, you know, men are men and women. Actually, the women have a lot more latitude because Anne is definitely not conventional women. But there is stuff in here that is really reprehensible. And I think that most evidently it's the, you know, for a book that's set a lot in Africa, there are no African characters that we're meant to take seriously. There are actually no Afrikaans characters that we're meant to sort of, that have any kind of dimension to them. This is very much a book about English and or American people uh, being abroad. And it's all about them. There is also one particular word which I'm not sure how far contemporary readers realise how offensive it is, which is the word kafir, K-A-F-F-I-R. And for those of us with links to Africa, you know that that's a deeply offensive colonial term for um, black Africans used, particularly in South Africa, but in general by white people who live there. And it comes, actually derives, I think, linguistically from the Arabic word for infidel, so kufr. So it would have been the word maybe the Arab traders used for the African people that they found when they hit the hit their continent. Uh, but it is really offensive. And it's a, a, as offensive for people in Africa and people who know that region as the N word would be for Americans. So reading that like multiple times in a book, did bring me up short. I mean, I don't blame Agatha Christie. She's off her time. So I don't think she's any better or worse than anyone at that time. But it is it is pretty noticeable that it's there. And just in general, where there are descriptions of the people who occupy the lands, it is using, you know, quite derogatory tropes. So they are simplistic. They are innocent at best. Um, basic at worst in their intellect. Um, it's it's just it's very reductive, and it's very at times orientalist. So, in her descriptions of love affairs and sexual attraction, so this is a book all about sexual attraction, right? Um, you know, Anne fancies the man in the brown suit, has a strong sexual attraction to him, and he has a strong sexual attraction to her. But she also has a strong sexual attraction to Colonel Race. And there is very much this idea that as modern and smart and independent um, as Anne is, she just needs a strong man <laughs> to bend her, to, to master her even. If I think at some point someone does use the phrase, he's mastered you, and she's kind of like strangely excited by this. 
There's also like a almost slightly S&M-y aspect to it that she gets very excited when someone nearly strangles her. So it's quite a fascinating book in terms of trying to like pass out how much of this was Agatha Christie and her need for excitement and how much of it were the attitudes of the time that you could be modern to a certain point, but then you do want a strong man to tame you. And this, I think, comes to that book I mentioned before and this concept of um, sort of modern conservatism, like it's a strange mashup. Um, to that end, I want to just read a couple of excerpts of the book, which I find um, really, well, not reprehensible, but just it's just fascinating seeing what attitudes were at the time. And this is just 100 years ago, right? So I want to read you some extracts of the book that I think are just indicative of its tone and the time in which it was set, which I find fascinating to read, you know. This is 100 years ago. This is when my um, my grandparents first showed up in the continent of Africa. Not white people, but still, I think, would have seen themselves as apart from, quote, unquote, the natives. So this is some of the attitude. This is Colonel Race speaking to Anne. Or Anne says, if I were to give a name to this place, I should call it the country of giant children. And he says, perhaps you're nearer the mark than you know. Simple, primitive, big. That is Africa. So primitive, that word primitive is used again and again, both about the country and the people. But some of the weirdest stuff in the book is about sex relations. So this is Agatha Christie and sex matters, sexual attraction matters. It's not all about just romantic sort of demure holding of hands. So this is Anne's explanation of the relationship between men and women that she's giving to Colonel Race. He says, so you don't class women as weak things. No, I don't think so. Though they are, I suppose. That is, they are nowadays. Papa always said that in the beginning, men and women roamed the world together, equal in strength like lions and tigers. They were nomadic, you see. It wasn't until they settled down in communities and women did one kind of thing and men another that women got weak. And of course, underneath, one is still the same. One feels the same, I mean. And that is why women worship physical strength in men. It's what they once had and have lost. So Colonel Race then goes on to say, and you really think that's true, that women worship strength, I mean? And she replies, I think it's quite true, if one's honest. You think you admire moral qualities, but when you fall in love, you revert to the primitive, where the physical is all that counts. But I don't think that's the end. If you lived in primitive conditions, it would be all right. But you don't. And so I think it's quite true, if one's honest. You think you admire moral qualities, but when you fall in love, you revert to the primitive where the physical is all that counts. So clearly, Agatha Christie knows that sexual attraction is what took her to Archibald Christie. And maybe I wonder when ruminating and writing these pages, she's wondering if that is what's going to sustain a marriage. And I guess that's in a way what was the problem with those days, that if you fancied someone, you, you didn't just shag them, you had to marry them. Um, and it gets you into all sorts of trouble. But my goodness, it's very, very bizarre. This is what Anne later says to the man in the brown suit who she's hugely attracted to. I shouldn't dream of marrying anyone unless I was madly in love with him. And of course, there is really nothing a woman enjoys so much as doing all the things she doesn't like for the sake of someone she does like. And the more self-willed she is, the more she likes it. I mean, that really sounds a bit Shakespeare taming of the tree, doesn't it? It's so nuts. And this is where, and she goes on to say the following. 
And that's why there are so many unhappy marriages. It's all the fault of the men. Either they give way to their women and then the women despise them, or else they are utterly selfish, insist on their own way and never say thank you. Successful husbands make their wives do just what they want and then make a frightful fuss of them for doing it. Women like to be mastered, but they hate not to have their sacrifices appreciated. On the other hand, men don't really appreciate women who are nice to them all the time. When I am married, I shall be a devil most of the time. But every now and then, when my husband least expects it, I shall show him what a perfect angel I can be. Um, so there you go. Quite a bizarre view on marriage. Um, so I think it's just fascinating because of where Agatha Christie was at this time of her life as a newly married woman. This incredibly feisty, entrepreneurial, smart woman who's being boxed into a suburban marriage and probably wants more from life than her husband is giving her. She's married him because of sexual attraction, because he is the tall, brooding, physically strong guy. But when they get back to England, she's the breadwinner. And she's probably thinking that she felt she wanted something more. I don't know. Despite the retrograde politics, this really is a super, super fun thriller. And I really hope you read it because you do get a sense of what it must have been like to travel in those days. And if you want sort of contemporary resonance, this is a novel that's set at a time of deep political unrest in South Africa where people are on strike and there's quasi-revolution and insurrection, if I can use that word in a contemporary meaning. I'm sitting in a country today where inflation is skyrocketing because of a war going on in my continent. And people are on strike, you know, maybe not as violently as this, but I certainly remember violent strikes in my youth in the 1980s, so... I should urge you to read The Man in the Brown Seat. It's kind of silly, but it's also kind of brilliant. And it's just got a very memorable heroine. And as I said, C. Eustace Peddler, excellent fun. And because you get to read his diaries, it really is like if Fiji Woodhouse um, wrote a satirical work about an MP. And just remember what I told you in The Secret Adversary. Agatha Christie, which I think is rather marvellous of her time, to all intents and purposes, a woman very much of the establishment. Always be suspicious when she presents you with a member of parliament or a member of the Church of England. She really does love to subvert our expectations um, in the most marvellous way. Anyway, as you can probably tell, I love rereading this book. This was just such an absolute laugh. I look forward to speaking to you soon. I hope you maybe are inspired to pick this book up. If not, have fun reading whatever it is that you are reading this weekend. And the next book that we will cover is The Secret of Chimneys that was published in 1925. And it's the last of the books that I'll be discussing in this brief way on my own before we all get together and discuss the murder of Roger Ackroyd. So it's the last of these kind of apprentice books where she's kind of Agatha Christie's playing with genre. Anyway, I really hope you enjoyed this and I hope you tune in next time. Have a great weekend, everyone.